Last night in my talk about compassion, I mentioned the Four Noble Truths and I reviewed with you the first noble truth, Dukkha Satcha, which means there is the truth of suffering. And I um, filled that out a bit for you, that the suffering uh, is caused by craving. And so tonight, what I'd like to offer you is an understanding of the second noble truth, the cause of suffering. I'd like to bring it into the light of our awareness, the subject of desire, craving, and clinging, because it's uh, a place of vexation. It's a place of uh, a cause of turmoil and vulnerability for our lives this dukkha satcha, this there is uh, the, the truth of suffering. And the second noble truth has to do with what is the cause of suffering. It's really important for us to understand this as human beings and people who suffer, people who are vulnerable, and to understand uh, how does it come to be so, so that there's a possibility to Uh, weaken those forces. And so this is a very important part of our understanding of right view. It's a vast subject and uh, as individuals we experience very directly this understanding of suffering. But we don't always look into what its cause is the cause of suffering and how the end of suffering can come to be. And of course, we often hear about the Eightfold Noble Path and how we can walk this path, develop this path of developing morality is part of the path, developing uh, just being a good human being through our speech and behavior, also developing concentration and developing wisdom. This, these are the three areas of the development of the path, the, the Eightfold Noble Path. So this cause of suffering has been constantly shaping, redefining our lives, who we think we are, in an unknowing way, in an unconscious way, when we're not conscious of what causes suffering. There are habitual forces that are constantly played out by us. Uh, They're deep and they're tenaciously rooted. So taking a look at this and understanding it is um, one of the most important things we can do in our lives as dhamma-farers. When we understand its nature, it isn't... um, We're not covering it up with delusion, nor are we ignoring it. We're really paying attention to how it feels in actually in its way of expressing itself through us. How does it arise? What does it feel like? How is it acted out in our lives? How is it relinquished? And what is a possibility to be free and not entrapped by it? Because if it's not recognized, the force of suffering, because of the force of craving, is strengthened through habit. 
we keep acting it out over and over again. And unknowingly, it controls our lives. So in the Dhamma, there are three roots of suffering. In short, they are greed and hatred, which are two sides of the same coin. And the third is delusion or ignorance. And delusion and ignorance accompany both greed and hatred. So it's also kind of latched on to both of those first two, greed and hatred. These are called the roots of suffering because when they're not recognized, when we're not mindfully aware of their presence, they are acted out and there is suffering in the moment of acting them out, suffering for others, not just for ourselves, but we suffer from the consequences of our actions. So let's start out by using the framework of the Four Noble Truths. This was the first Dhamma talk that the Buddha gave to his companions on the path who became some of his disciples. And in this Dhamma talk, he let them know how he came to understand the origin of this existential lack of peaceful abiding. We all feel this lack of peaceful abiding this chaotic vulnerability we feel as human beings, and um, the way, the possibility, the potential we have to know deep peace in ourselves is not often known. And sometimes, you know, we don't even think about it. But this is what the Buddha, our root teacher, brought out, this possibility of being free from suffering by understanding the cause of suffering. So his first sermon was called the Dhamma Chaka Pavatana Sutta. It means the turning of the wheel of the Dhamma, the truth of how things are, how things come to be, and how things can come to an end. The first noble truth, as I explained last night, that the Buddha expounded on, was Dukkha Satcha. There is the truth of suffering. And last night I talked about how it was so relieving for me to hear this, to understand this, because it met me where I I was at uh, 40 years ago when I first heard the Dhamma. I realized that, oh, this is is, uh, kind of like a confirmation of how it is for me. It's not like somebody telling me you have to be someplace else that I'm not. It's like saying, this is where you're at right now and we're going to start right here. So it felt very acknowledging, very confirming to understand this first noble truth. That's how it is on this plane of existence that we live on. And this first noble truth is to be investigated. And that's what we're doing here. We're really being able to look deeply at how it is that this... uh, these feelings of invulnerability, of turmoil within us. Of course, there are are moments of peace. Sometimes there are many moments, sometimes there's not many moments. But uh, we, we feel a lot of this turmoil, this inner turmoil. And how are we going to come to the end of it? The second noble truth, uh, which I'm investigating tonight, is there is a cause, an origin, of this suffering, and the Buddha talked about that as craving. 
And this cause is to be abandoned. It's to be relinquished. And then as the Buddha goes on more to talk about the third and the fourth noble truths, it's how to do that. So just to quote the Buddha in the Anguttara Nikaya, he said, and what is the cause by which suffering comes into play? Craving is the cause by which suffering comes into play. So the third noble truth is that there is an end to suffering. There can be a cessation of suffering. It's possible. And when we come to the end of craving, that will be the end of suffering. So this third noble truth, the Buddha said, is to be realized and that we as human beings have the potential to realize that just as he, as an example of a human being, came to that realization and that freedom. And the fourth noble truth is there is a path to the end of suffering. And that path is the, four, this, the Eightfold Noble Path. So that's a whole other... Um, I'll probably give that talk before we leave this retreat. So that Eightfold Noble Path, which includes the practices of sila, living in morality, living in harmony with one another and in alignment with our highest values, uh, uh, developing concentration and developing wisdom, all based on on living uh, a moral life, uh, a life of non-harming. So this Eightfold Noble Path is to be developed. So the first noble truth is a recognition of our human predicament. This is what the Buddha called the disease. The second noble truth is a diagnosis. You know, what is the cause of this disease? Why is there suffering? Why is there this turmoil inwardly and all around us? What is the reason for this? And the reason is craving. The third noble truth is a prognosis, that it's possible to become free. This is our human potential if we live it out, if we, if we work on this, you know, to, rea- to investigate, to abandon, to realize. And the fourth noble truth, the path to the end, is a therapy, the medicine, the methodology enabling human beings like us to realize this potential, if we want to. It takes a lot of energy. It takes a lot of opening. It takes a lot of letting go of places where we don't see so clearly. And that letting go is painful sometimes. So, so much hinges on the understanding of the root of this suffering, which is craving. Because when we understand its nature, how it operates, how it manifests, and how it manipulates us, it's not as likely to entrap us. It's not as likely to fool us. And so, This is why we do this practice. So first I want to reassure you and to myself (laughs) that, you know, my path is not finished and I wish I could take all the advice that I give you, actually. Um, But I know how to do it, but there are deep habit patterns and I don't always follow my own advice. I'm doing better as the years go by, but... um, 
I don't want you to think I'm sitting up here as some accomplished human being. I, I just know that it's really hard and I, I've got some tricks up my sleeve that I can impart to you because others have imparted to me. So we all experience this, these experiences of attachment, greed, hatred, aversion, delusion, not feeling good enough, not feeling clear enough. It's all part of being human and um, you know we don't have to kind of pretend, which I'm sure most of us don't, that we're there already or be upset because we're not there yet. So in our practice, that's what we're doing, is we're coming to understand more clearly how all, this, how all of this manifests and what are the antidotes to it and how can we come to be closer to it so that we see that this craving is really painful when there's craving. It's, we get what we want and so we kind of forget the pain of it. But because we get what we want all the time and we don't practice letting go as much as we can, we practice getting and getting more usually. I mean, that's how the world is in this hedonic treadmill, in this samsara. And so we tend to kind of go along with how the world goes. That's why it, it goes in this certain way, you know. But what the Buddha called this path is kind of going upstream and finding out, going against the stream and finding out what is the cause, going to the very kind of beginning as much as possible. So there are conditions for um, its arising, uh, the, the causes of suffering, the causes of craving, and the ramifications of craving, uh, the blind addiction to it, when we see its causes, its conditions, and the ramifications of it, first we learn to refrain more and more from filling all of our desires. We learn to renounce. We learn to refrain. We learn to just step back and feel the craving or to notice the feeling, the pleasant feeling. I'll speak about that more later. We come to understand the causes and conditions for its weakening, its lessening, its uprooting. And so we tend to play those out more. Being generous, we learn to strengthen generosity, loving kindness, which is the generosity of the heart. We learn to be patient, equanimity, the power of uh, compassion to ourselves when we feel that suffering so that we're not so hard on ourselves, causing more suffering. So that's why you know, I've imparted to you most of these kinds of talks to understand what the causes and conditions are for the weakening, the lessening, the uprooting of all this suffering. So we're coming to understand the inner terrain more clearly by being with it over and over again. It's not easy to be with these moments when it's not all bliss. We're not going for that here. We're going for actually opening to the suffering, opening to what's there every day in our lives. So in having more and more acceptance of them because we, we know them and um, we can open to it. And it's just like being in front of a crying child. 
You know, we can be there with it. We can soothe with compassion. Sometimes we need equanimity to kind of stand back and let it be. And sometimes we need to just be there aware of what's going on. I mean, that's the most powerful thing. So, first I want to talk, before I go into all of that, um, you know, the, the cause for its arising and understanding how it weakens, I just want to get used to the accepting of the temperaments that we have. Because as human beings, we all have these kind of uh, temperaments, these personalities that play out, either mostly uh, attachment or greed, mostly aversion, or ways that we kind of push away, or mostly delusion. So I want to um, talk about some lighter fare in the Dharma about these temperaments that are explained mostly in the uh, path of purification, the Visuddhimagga. These were brought out by Buddha Gosha in the 5th century AD. And so these are, these are not in the suttas, but they're interesting to understand because you'll come to see what your own temperament is and maybe you won't feel so shamed about it in a way or so uncomfortable about it. I found these uh, very interesting to learn about myself and others who I'm with on the on the path. Because, you know, when you're in, in Buddhist circles, in the back room, we kind of kid each other about, oh, never mind, she's the aversive type, and so she's going to act like that in a meeting. Or, well, never mind, he's a greedy type, so that's the way he acts in, in a meeting. And some of us are deluded types, and we don't, we don't know what's going on at all, usually. You know? And so they're usually the, the most easy to get along with. <laughs> so we have these habitual uncon- unconscious tendencies as our kind of default setting. We're either the greedy type, we're called, they're called either the greedy type, the aversive type, or the deluded type. So you'll kind of see which one you are. Um, and it'll be better and better for us to understand that because then we're just accepting of it. You know, we just see that's the way it goes for greedy types. For example, I'm a self-professed greedy type. And greedy types are always kind of on the lookout for something pleasant. You go into, like I'll go into a, a restaurant with some friends of mine, and right away the greedy type is looking for pleasant experience. So I'm looking for the seating arrangement that's not near the kitchen door, or at a place where the fan isn't at our backs, or the you know the entrance door is if we're not there at the entrance door. I'm looking around the room for the most comfortable place. So my um, my uh, colleagues say to me, Kamala, where should we sit? I'm right away. I am the one who has the wisdom there, and but the <laughs> the aversive type will say, will point out that's not a good place to sit. You might think that's a good place to sit, but look, there's some <laughs> there's a baby over there. That baby's going to cry, you know. So <laughs> let's not sit there. And oh, okay. Well, now I know that. You know, I'm more aware now of that. 
And the deluded type just stands by and says, anything you say, anything you say, I, I don't know, you can decide. And so you, we kind of see ourselves like that. So behind, behind the scenes, you know, when we're in a meeting, th- this, this, th- these are high-powered teachers. And we, we all look to, I'm not going to name them because that might not be so good. Except, <laughs> except for Sharon Salzberg is a self-professed deluded type. <laughs> so um, we're in a meeting behind the scenes and uh, we'll ask the aversive type, what do you see can go wrong here? You know, and we're all paying attention to, I think it's safe to say that Steve, he's self-professed Steve Armstrong, self-professed aversive type. So everybody looked to Stephen, what do you think could go wrong here? And we just really all listen because he's very keen about that. And um, then, you know, we actually, the deluded type, somebody like Sharon Salzberg, who, I'll give you an example, she puts the example I'm going to give next in a Dharma talk, so I feel like I could give that to you. But the deluded type really turns out to be a type that sees a lot because they're always having to to investigate, to look really well, to understand. So when you ask Sharon a question about something, she can go all over the map and tell you so many different examples of this and that. Her mind is really amazing. But she professes to be deluded type too. For example, she gives this example in a Dharma talk where she couldn't remember where she parked her car. And there are different places where we work at Insight Meditation Society. She's one of the founders, where you can park your car. You can park your car over at her house and Joseph's house, which is kind of the next lot away. You might have left your car down at um, Gaston Pond, where some of us live when we're working there. Or you could have left your car over at the Buddhist Study Center or at the Forest Refuge, and you could have been at all those places, and at one place you got a ride, and you forgot where your car is. So she comes into the dining room, and she's asking, has anybody seen my car? You know, and so then everybody kind of chimes in. Well, let's think back. You went here and you went here, and she will just say, "I I don't know where. I don't know where I left the car," and she'll be just just waiting for somebody else to give an answer. You know, it's just so refreshing to see how honest we are about the type of being that we mainly have these. impulses towards and default settings about. So there you have it with some of us. And uh, I'm the one that looks for the pleasant experience. But I want to tell you something else. By the way, I asked Manindraji when this all came out, Manindraji, what type am I? And he said, you're very balanced. You have them all. (laughs) So I I just felt, and I do, I see that those parts of myself. But that one thing I want to tell you about the greedy type, just like I said about the deluded type, that it, it kind of knows a lot of terrain. Well, the, what the greedy type does, same like that it seeks for pleasant experiences, which is a precursor to greed, actually. Pleasant experience is a precursor to greed. 
But the greedy type also can seek out when it's more advanced or more mature in the Dharma, it seeks out um, faith. It's a faith type because it seeks out experiences that lead to liberation. And that, that is exactly what I do all the time. Not all the time, but I'm looking for things that are going to help me understand how to get to the end of suffering more. I'm con- my reading material at night is usually about Dharma material. I'll have a novel, but I'll usually go to the Dharma material because I'm really interested in it. So I'm seeking out the end of suffering all the time. It's uh, this greed type when it's mature in the Dharma or maturing in the Dharma seeks is a, turns into the faith type. So um, these energies also, as you become more mature in the Dharma, you'll see that the energy of, of greed turns into faith. The energy of aversion turns into a very, very sharp mind, like we notice Steve Armstrong is a very, very sharp mind. And the energy of um, delusion, because it's in the Dharma and really needing to investigate, it investigates a lot. So it has a lot of information that leads to the end of suffering. So this seeking out is um, also part of this unconscious habit pattern of craving. Or we call it greed sometimes. Uh, it says about uh, greed does not give up what's harmful but faith which is the opposite faith does not give up what's beneficial so that, that beautiful way that it goes together like that I had a term for um Let's see where it is. Maybe it's still coming. Well, let me just say that sometimes we, like in this retreat I heard, well, isn't wanting to find an antidote, it wasn't said like that, but you could think of like wanting to find an antidote, well, that's still wanting, but that's wanting to go towards the end of suffering when you're wanting to find an antidote to like aversion or to sloth and torpor, etc. So there is a wanting um, that in the Dharma that is very different from craving. And there's a whole different word for it. In in, uh, Pali, the word for craving is tanha. And the word for like wanting something that's leading to liberation that word in Pali is chanda, very different. So there, there's a, the description of these things um, in Pali is much more uh, laid out. It's much more detailed. So not all wanting is bad, of course. You know, we want to have a good education. We want to um, help our children grow up in the right way. We want to um, earn a good living so we can survive and not be a burden to others and maybe even help others uh, with what we earn. So there's, there's wanting that leads to the good also. 
So taking some time to explore the definitions of some of the words we use to define this pernicious deep force that causes disease in ourselves and in the world. Um, in the Persian wisdom, greed is a noun that overarches and covers a whole subject, a, a wide subject matter. And uh, greed in the Persian wisdom is uh, has a saying that goes like this, do you know what can never be satisfied? The eye of greed, all of the world's goods cannot fill the abyss of its desire. His Holiness says about greed, when it comes to dealing with greed, one thing which is quite characteristic is that although it arises from the desire to obtain something, it is not satisfied by obtaining it. Therefore, it becomes limitless or boundless, and that leads to trouble. The interesting thing about greed is that although the underlying motivation is to seek satisfaction, as I pointed out before, even after obtaining the object of one's desire, one is still not satisfied. On the other hand, if one has a strong sense of contentment, it doesn't matter whether one obtains the object or not. Either way, one is content. So in this, what uh, His Holiness is pointing out is that contentment is one of the ways that we can handle in, in our lives this whole area of greed that's constantly getting fed, so it's constantly getting nourished in that kind of pathway in our minds, is constantly getting exercised and deepened, so we fall into it easier and easier. In the Dhamma, the language for uh, the word that connotes this will or this aspiration to do something good, now that's where I have this word chanda, to become good or to attain a meritorious goal, free from a defiled state, that is called chanda, this will to do something good. But I, I might add that chanda can also mean the will to do something not good. But it does mean this also, the will to do something good. So there's a, a different set of words in Pali that characterizes varying intensities of what we call desire that lead to a state of loss. So the English language doesn't suffice, it's not adequate to explain this whole area. So we'll start with the word raga, R-A-G-A. That word connotes lust, and it stands for, according to Nyanaponika Thera, a German monk who studied and was in Sri Lanka for a long time, this word raga is a state of lack, a state of neediness and want. It is always seeking fulfillment, but its drive is inherently unsatiable as long as it endures, it maintains a sense of lack. This is the characteristic of raga. As long as it endures, it maintains a sense of lack. So the remedy to this is to feel this sense of lack when we're feeling it. When we're feeling this neediness or this sense of lack, usually what follows that is craving. So. 
This reminds me of um, this I heard from Sharon Salzberg in one of her talks on desire. I like to throw in some of these stories because it's such a heavy-duty um, Dharma talk, this one on craving. So she was in a marketplace somewhere in the Middle East and uh, at a bazaar, and she heard in somewhere in the marketplace a storekeeper shouting out, I have what you need. I have what you need. So she was talking about when she heard this, in her sort sort of rooting around in her mind was, where do I need this? Where do I have a sense of lack about this? And she was looking inside to see, do I really need this? Just really investigating. And I think the story came out with, I don't need that. So she just kind of walked away from where that was coming from. But it was interesting that it struck her that she started investigating that. You know, when somebody, she heard out in the background, I have what you need. So her answer was, really? And really investigated, like, is that really true? So this is what we need to really see for ourselves. Uh, do we do, do we really have that need? And then can we look at that state of lack in ourselves? Because this is a precursor to craving. So it's this neediness, this constant wanting. This is our human predicament. You know, remember that not all wanting is bad. I always get this this uh, question when I give this talk and I didn't put in this chanda bit of it. You know, there's always this arg- argument about, yeah, but I need to raise my children. I need to talk to my wife about the budget, you know, and things like that. But it's different. It's a very different understanding there. So this human predicament that we're in, this default setting when it's not investigated, is seeking happiness in all the wrong places. And we're constantly feeding this wanting. So what happens is wanting comes up and we feed it. There's this um, cartoon, if you can picture this. There's a um, monkey in the cartoon. And it's, its mind, is it's got this kind of um, balloon over its head which says it's looking for something. I'm wanting something. I'm wanting something. And then a banana comes up. So a banana you know, comes into the presence of the monkey. So it reaches out. It grabs for it. And then it, it chomps down and it gets satisfied. And because of that satisfaction, it's a little while, you know, the next few frames are like, it's just sitting there quietly. And pretty soon, because it got satisfied, what got satisfied? The wanting got satisfied. The pleasant feeling and the wanting that went after that got satisfied. So it's very comfortable for a while and then it pops up again and it thinks about the banana and wanting again. So this constant satisfaction that we're giving the wanting is actually feeding that wanting to arise again and again and again. And so this is what we have to know about that uh, wanting. That every time we feed it unnecessarily, it's planting the seed of another moment of wanting. And this is what keeps us on the hedonic treadmill, which is samsara.
it's constantly looking for something, satisfaction in this realm of impermanence. Doesn't make sense, but that's what we do. So now my mantra is, when I go to a store, it doesn't always work, by the way. My (laughs) mantra is, I have what I need. I go to the store and I pass all the beautiful colors and things that I usually get attracted to. And my mantra is, I have what I need. I have what I need. I'm just going to walk right through. But just a minute, I'm going to look at this for a minute, you know. So wanting wins again. Just wanting to look. And so um, having, knowing that we have what we need and really paying attention to, if we're not really believing that, paying attention to feeling that neediness for whatever it is. It's a way to counteract that habitual feeling of lack, to actually come to that experience of the feeling of lack of the feeling of wanting, the feeling of neediness, and bring it out of the darkness and into the light. Bring it into the light of mindfulness. It talked about how mindfulness can be a mirror that simply reflects what's going on, but it's also depicted as the light, a light. Sometimes it's called the mirror of mindfulness, the light of mindfulness, because it lights up what has been in delusion, what has been in darkness. And so then we see this moment of, oh, there's neediness there. There's a sense of lack there. Do we really need to act it out right now? Do we really need, like in speech, do we really need to say this right now? Do we really need to do this right now? So we're really looking inward to that feeling, not kind of um, objectifying it and figuring it out intellectually, But in the Dhamma, what we're doing is looking right here and feeling it, actually feeling that experience. Because what happens when we feel it? It feels, it doesn't feel good. That in itself feels like suffering. That's painful, to feel that neediness, to feel that wanting. When you're there, it's sort of like just chomping at you, just wanting you to you know, of course, get near it and do something about it so it stops feeling bad. If you can turn your attention away from the object and turn towards the feeling of wanting, it's a very different experience. So this is what we we can do in our practice. So in English, craving is not mere desire, but it's a powerful desire for something. It's, the word is tanha. Literally, tanha means thirst. It's the chief root of suffering and ever-continuing cycle of rebirth. It's called the chief root of suffering. It's often depicted by a feeling of thirst because of, the ig- of being ignorant of salt, that this water is salt water, for example, that every time we feed it, it's like salt water. And when we take it, we constantly become more thirsty because we want more and more. It can't be um, satisfied. Ignorance of right view, the view that um, dukkha, sacha, means uh, there is the, the, 
dukkha sacha means there is a truth of suffering and that no, nothing in this conditioned world is going to have lasting happiness. That is one of the truths of suffering. That nothing in this conditioned, impermanent world is going to give lasting happiness. So when we're ignorant of that view, it's the fuel for craving. Ignorance is, is talked about as the underlying cause of craving. Craving is a chief root of suffering, but ignorance is the underlying cause of suffering. Two different understandings. The wrong view that whatever one craves for and gets is going to give everlasting gratification. Of course it can't, because in this realm of existence there is impermanence. There's nothing like complete, utter, forever satisfaction unless it's in the unconditioned realm. So we're talking about this conditioned realm. It could last a long, long, long time. There are blissful states of mind, they say, that can last world cycles long. <laughs> but um, And it seems like that would last forever, but even that ends when that world cycle ends. Uh, it, it's hard for my mind to grasp that. It's just something that I've read in the Dharma. But I can understand why that can, why people can understand how a state of mind can last a long, long time and how an understanding of some everlasting deity with an appellation of God can be named because it can seem very, very long. But even that comes to, can come to an end. World cycles come to an end. It's said that the two great disappointments of life are getting what you want because um, it's disappointing because when you get it and you cling to it, you have to guard it. You have to worry about it because you might lose it. You have to ensure it, you know, because when you lose it, you want to replace it. Uh, but in the end, you lose it or it loses you because you die. So uh, it's a disappointment to get what you want <laughs> because you want it to last forever, usually. It's also a, an appoint, disappointment to not get what you want, of course, because there's frustration, there's disappointment, there's more greed because you, you're going for more or a different version of that. So it said also, and we experience that there is craving for pleasant feeling, for the pleasant feeling of sense objects, the pleasant feeling of uh, visions or uh, visible, vi visible experiences, the pleasant feeling of sounds, the pleasant feeling of odors, the pleasant feeling of tastes, the pleasant feeling of mental impressions, of thinking. So you can attest to that for yourself, you know, the, the pleasant feeling of all these that come with all of these sense doors, physical sense doors and also the mental sense door. There's also the opposite of that, the unpleasant feeling. But craving goes after the pleasant feeling. It doesn't necessarily go after the object that that's, co that's connected with that pleasant feeling. It goes for the pleasant feeling 
um, that is within that object. So we can see this for ourselves. But there's also, and I'll, I'll fill that out in a moment, there's also craving for existence. The craving that um, maybe you experience that today, if you've experienced pl- planning mind. Ha- have you experienced planning mind? Okay. <laughs> planning mind has within it the craving for future existence. Because you're planning your future, you're planning that you're going to live into this, right? And we plan for a lot, we need to plan. So we do plan in, in, for our families, in our business, in school, we have to plan what we're going to do next. We do have to know what our intention is. And that's what we do in life. But when we realize sometimes we're planning for a craving for existence through all of our, even in our planning, we're, we're having this craving, of course. But it also means, in a, kind of in a more dharmic way, that the impulse for rebirth at the moment of death is this craving for existence. So that's a deeper subject. We also crave for non-existence. How do we do that? When you were sitting there and having a painful moment, didn't you wish you didn't exist anymore? Or at least that painful experience didn't exist. But there's sometimes, sometimes in life, when there's really, really hard experiences, I, I've experienced this before, that I would have a sort of a, a feeling of, if I don't wake up in the morning, it would be completely okay with me. How, how many of you have experienced that? Right, it's like, some, it's not that I have, um, you know, suicidal ideation, <laughs> not nothing like that, but it's like, I don't, right now, I just don't want to live anymore. It's too hard. Life is too hard. And I, you know, it may be just a foolish thought, but sometimes I believe it for a few moments. So I want to give you an example of how pleasant feeling can arise and um, based on an experience like through an odor. So I had this experience at my last retreat when, um, first of all, I heard a few days before when I I was a yogi and I heard my job was to be in the kitchen and make the salad, clean all the salad, um, you know, the lettuce, which was, it was a big job. And so many people. So I I heard in the kitchen, they were talking over, they were going to make brownies. And so right away, I didn't even smell the odor. I just thought of the brownies. And so I was a yogi, so I saw thinking. And then right away, upon thinking of that thought, there was a pleasant feeling. And it wasn't even, the brownie wasn't even there yet. You know, it was just the thought and then the pleasant feeling. So, you know, when you get really subtle in your practice, you start experiencing these this Vedana, this pleasant feeling. Have any of you experienced that here? Pleasant feeling? Yeah. So it's the pleasant feeling that arises that is the proximate cause for the craving to arise, for the wanting to arise. And so 
that craving is looking for the pleasant feeling. It's not looking for the brownies, you know, it's or the thought about the brownies. It's looking for the pleasant feeling. So in our practice, when pleasant feeling comes up, if there can be mindfulness of the pleasant feeling, what is likely to happen in that moment if your if your practice is really clear? What is mindfulness reflecting in that moment about pleasant feeling? What? Impermanence. Okay. If mindfulness is there, it's looking at the impermanent nature of that pleasant feeling, right? I mean, if it's clear. And what happens to that pleasant feeling? It changes and it goes away. So what happens then? If there's a craving lurking around, it's not going to go anywhere. (laughs) It's not making a scene. It's not planting a seed. So what happens in that moment is one moment of freedom. It's one moment when craving is not being replanted in your karmic stream to come up again. So when we, when we face a moment of pleasant feeling with mindfulness, instead, when mindfulness isn't there, what can happen? Pleasant feeling can come about, mindfulness is not strong, craving comes along, it chases after that pleasant feeling, it doesn't see that pleasant feeling with right view because it's not mindfulness, it's not wisdom. And so it, it causes another moment of cra- craving to go into your mind stream and arise again. And over and over and over, that's how we have to deal with it. It comes up over and over again. But when we constantly are able to see this pleasant moment, this pleasant Vedana, craving comes less in the mind. And as you're in the practice a longer time, you see that it doesn't come up as much. You can see through the years. It, it just, it, you can see there's a pleasant moment, boom. That's it. You go on to the next moment. So the fuel for craving to arise is wrong view perceiving that whatever is happening is going to last forever. If it's pleasant, there's going to be everlasting gratification in that. That's wrong view. And then the opposite, if it's unpleasant, that will last forever. So how many times have you sat down and there was pain in your knee and you thought, this is going to last forever? And then you think you're going to get crippled, you won't, you'll have to be carried out of the... Hall. I mean, all these things come because we have wrong view of that unpleasant moment, that it is uh, permanent, that it will last forever. The, the, um, but I loved what Lena said the other night. You know, she had these pleasant moments, and she said, "Wait here, I'll be back." <laughs> but, but I guess it was coming. It, maybe it was there, but it wasn't the same pleasant moment. It was different, actually. So, um, when we're training in vipassana, vipassana, we're seeing things as they are. We're understanding them to be indisputably and deeply experientially impermanent. Nobody can tell you differently. 
it's it, even if you think it waited for you, Lena, there was a different moment of that pleasantness there. So when it's not seen, we're constantly seeking gratification, which is not eternally satisfying. But we think it is, and that's wrong view. But when we're seeing impermanence, we're seeing the wisdom of this unsatisfactory nature. So what Vipassana sees are these three universal characteristics, impermanence, anicca. Also, from that impermanence, it sees dukkha, the unsatisfactory nature of it. It's not that we go along saying, oh, everything's unsatisfactory. I think I'll I'll, commit suicide or something. It's not that. I mean, there is a point in our practice where things can kind of seem disgusting for a while. But what we see in the unsatisfactory nature is it's not going to give us total satisfaction. So if if we're enjoying it, we know it's going to go away. It's not going to last. Things don't last. And um, sometimes we'll take a look at it and we'll say, it's not going to give any satisfaction, so we don't even reach out. The mind doesn't even reach out for it. And so that begins to be the end of suffering, when we're not always reaching out and causing more and more craving because we're constantly satisfying it. So tanha is the word for craving, the craving that cannot bring lasting happiness. And there's another word which means clinging, which comes together together with craving, and that's upadana. Upadana means that there's not only craving, but when we get it, we're holding on to it tightly. So this tanha and upadana go together. So I'd like to read something from the Buddha, from the Anguttara Nikaya. Monks, he was talking to the monks, I will teach you craving, the ensnarer that has flowed along, spread out and caught hold, with which this world is smothered and enveloped like a tangled skein, that's a kind of a yarn skein, a knotted ball of string, like matted rushes and reeds, and does not go beyond transmigration, which means beyond this world. It, does, it will not go beyond this world of strife. It will not go to the unconditioned. It will not go to Nibbana, is what he means. Beyond the plains, it does not go beyond the plains of deprivation, woe, and bad destinations. It means it stays in the plains of deprivation. And he goes on to say in the... Um, Dhammapada, if this sticky, uncouth craving overcomes you in this world, your sorrows grow um, uncouth craving does not overcome you in this world. Your sorrows will sorrows will grow like wild grass. If in this world you do overcome this uncouth craving, hard to escape, your sorrows will roll off you like water beads off a lotus. When a person lives heedlessly, their craving grows like a creeping vine, runs now here and there, as if looking for fruit, a monkey in the forest. 
So it's important for us to understand that inner freedom is based on our ability to see life with right view, to see life as anicca, the impermanent nature of it, dukkha, because of that uh, impermanent nature, there's nothing that can be totally and always eternally held on to. There's nothing that will give us lasting eternal happiness. And also to see anatta, which is kind of uh, more deeply seeing how the impersonal life is because of seeing impermanence. And I'm going to fill that part out in another, at another time. So this seeing of this pleasant feeling um, is a proximate cause for craving not to arise. When we see this pleasant feeling arise, can we just be with the pleasant feeling and see the impermanent and in time the impersonal nature of it? So tomorrow I'll be um, including in the instructions this ability, your capability, your capacity to turn the mind towards this pleasant feeling, unpleasant feeling, neutral feelings. So what are the antidotes to craving? I mentioned one of them is to turn your mind to the impermanent nature of Vedana, of that pleasant feeling, also the unpleasant feeling to see impermanence. And then when you have an object of craving, say you you want to go check your email or something, and you made this determination when you get here, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to make the determination to stay away from that and to practice the strength of mind And so I know some of you do have to check what's going on at home, so I I don't want to make you wrong or make you feel guilty. But say that we did have this determination to do it. And so then maybe we want to watch this kind of thought of, oh, I'll check the email. And then that pleasant feeling that comes. And then just to stay with that pleasant feeling and to notice that it, it drops away. So with it can drop the object can drop the kind of, the object was to go and check the email. But there's another way you can check this out. Just to, you have this thought of going to check the email, and then, okay, I'm going to go do that. And so then you know that it's going to be fulfilled. So this wanting is going after, like, okay, maybe I'll go when nobody's looking, (laughs) or I'll go at a certain time at night, or something like that, because then... I can go to sleep after that and my, you know, just forget about it if you have to check things at home, for example. And so then, then you decide, no, I'm not going to do it, but I'm going to check out how wanting feels. So check, turn your attention toward the wanting feeling and see how strong that is. Because you already said, okay, I'm going to go check it, but then you decide, no, I'm not going to do that. So feel what the wanting mind feels like. Just feel how that is painful. It's suffering. 
So you let go of the object and you turn towards a wanting. Feel that particular agitation in the mind. The unsatisfactoriness of that. It's not even the object of the wanting. It's the wanting itself. So, another antidote to it, another way to handle it, is to practice generosity. It's the first parami that the Buddha gave. Why? Because practicing generosity is letting go. It's sort of like, you know, maybe we want to hold on to something, our time, our energy. Um, maybe want, we want to hold on to something that belongs to us, but we don't need it anymore, but we're still holding on to it. Um, and we can see that just giving it up, letting it go, can feel like a relief to us. And we get used to letting go. We get just more and more used to letting go of being right, letting go of our self-righteous indignation, letting go of trying to make our children this way and that way, letting go of needing to be their mentor anymore. Um, So letting go the opposite of greed really helps. Utejinia would say giving up, giving away greed is generosity. So it helps to be generous. It helps to be contented, appreciating what we have. You know, knowing that I, I have what I need. I have what I need. That's a sense of contentment. Practicing renunciation, the conscious practice when wanting is there to not satisfy it. Sometimes I'll have this strong wanting to eat something, to do something, but not to satisfy it is really hard. But doing it on purpose is very powerful, to just not satisfy it. When you're sitting, you know, and there's an itch on you, and you you really want to scratch that itch, but not scratching it is is not going to hurt you. Just try practicing renunciation. Don't scratch it. Your hand may go there, but you just see how hard it is not to go after that desire to itch, which it's so natural. Nothing wrong with itching it if you want to do that. Yeah. But, the, you know, when I was doing the metta, a fly was buzzing around. Did you hear it? On, it landed on the microphone a few times. And I thought, what was that? Oh, that was a fly. But there were several moments when, you know, it would go here and there, when it would come on my nose or towards my eyes, I would, I would do this, you know, automatically. But there were times I just felt it going here and there. And there was a little renunciation that I'm just going to let it. I'm not going to do this automatically. And it, it was powerful to feel like I don't have to do what the mind always says it should do, you know. So practicing it once in a while can be a really uh, powerful thing for your practice. So these are the, the ways of, stri- of um, craving, lust, you know, clinging, trying to satisfy every need that we have and ways that we can practice not doing that in our lives so that we become stronger. We can become stronger than craving. 
it's possible. We can become stronger than lusting after something which is very strong craving. And when we have craved it and gotten it, maybe we can let go. We don't need to cling. So there's so many ways that we can practice it, being more generous, contented in ourselves. I mean, you know, this, these kinds of um, understandings that the Buddha gave are hard to practice. They're not always, in, you know, happy to listen to. But um, this is a way to the end of suffering. It's said that attachment or craving is like honey on a razor's edge. It looks like pleasure, but offers only pain. So think of that when there's craving. You know, you go over there to get it off the razor's edge and it can cut you. Okay, let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.